Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. I first met Lucian when we were given a painting. Uh, welcome to the collection, and uh, I made that call, and we spoke, and got to know each other somewhat, and then several years later, it must have been, it yeah. was one of the rain paintings, a beautiful, small, black and white rain painting from 2011, and a few years after that, like three or four, three at least, I followed, of course, everything Lucian was doing, and he called and he said he had a suite of paintings that had been made, in fact, in Southampton, painted in Southampton in 2013. It was sort of a coda to the whole rain paintings. He had put them away in storage. He was getting them out in storage. Now, when you talk about the trajectory of Lucian's career and an artist, you might say he's a little young to be looking back in that sense. I think, but he felt, and why should I speak for Lucian, but just to set the scene here, he definitely felt it was a time to go back and see what that was all about. And he said, you were gonna install them in a warehouse in New York. Would I like to come and see them? And I said, I'll be there whenever you call. And I walked into the room there at the warehouse. And the interesting thing to me, was that aside from the paintings, which are gorgeous and which I hope you've all seen here at the museum and all of you um, in the audience on Zoom will also have the opportunity to come and see the work. But the configuration of the room at the warehouse, white walls, exactly the same as one of our thousand square foot galleries. And so I say what curators always say, they, they say, I'd love to do this, I just don't know when. I don't know when we'd have a single gallery available and blah, 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 right? So then what happened? About a year and a half later, at least. Yeah. It's been a while. I got a call. You did get a call. We had hoped to uh, open, as all museums did after uh, being closed for so long. We finally got an opening date. We knew we could do it in early August. And uh, we had postponed the work shows that were due to come on and were sort of playing to our strengths, as one critic pointed out, one writer pointed out. And we have the Porter Show, the all wonderful Jackie Black photographs. And I thought, Lucian's a collection artist, why don't I just call him and see the paintings? Does he still have them? Are they still a group? What? And you said, I said, I'd like to do the solution. And you said, Let's do it. <laughs> That's right, with those immortal or, words. Or I said, hell yeah. Let's do it. I said, I have a kind of problem. We have to have them here in two weeks. He said, let's do it. So you made it happen. Yeah. I couldn't be happier because, um, as I say, you don't often get to do something that's spontaneous in this business, but because uh, it's a museum now, it's I'm a, shocked. I feel like it's a bit fitting for my career anyway. It's a spontaneous yeah. museum show. Yeah, well. I thought you'd had a gazillion museum shows, but it's the first one. <laughs> happy, happy, happy. This is the first one. Um, why don't we start with this? 
This oh, the, the coaster. Has yeah. anyone here? Okay. Um, yeah, so I've been living in Montauk for six years now, and I love the little joke they make about Montauk that it's a drinking town with a fishing problem. <laughs> and so there's one infamous bar in the docks of Montauk that I used to frequent called Liar's Saloon. And so I came up with the graphic design for this show based on a coaster that they have at that bar. And I thought it was fitting just for the whole like sort of Bonac fishing community and these paintings being made geographically in this location, I thought was a bit tongue in cheek to have this be the invite. We made a bunch of t-shirts and mugs that- That's great. Not great. selling you on this, but they're in the gift shop if you want That's them. That's right, shameless um, product placement. Uh, but yeah, it all, it, it <laughs> like, I think the whole show it, it, from the very, beginning, even the, the creation point of making the paintings was a bit serendipitous as far as them being so geogra made geographically close to where we are now. Exactly. And then having them here is a real cool, like therapeutic full circle experience. So um, yeah, that's where that came from. Outside my house and studio on April 20th. Um, yeah, so, so this is the house that I moved into. You know, I at a point in my career, I kind of just was a little bit taken back by a lot of the things that were happening so fast for me. I was probably 21 when I made the rain paintings and it, in, in like a few months they were first lot in Sotheby's and that was just a lot for me to deal with. And, and in 2015, I kind of scrambled together the remaining cash that I had and, and purchased this house and I've, I've been living there ever since. And I, on the other side of this camera is my garage that I converted into a studio, which I've been working in for the past six years and actually just today just looked at a studio in East Hampton so this whole museum show the nonprofit that I've been working on serving the people has kind of coerced me slowly into wanting to make art again so it's been very exciting even yesterday I was up till like three o'clock just like scanning images of like topographical maps and weather patterns and thinking about you know what what's the next thing that I want to do and those are very exciting feelings because I hadn't had those in such a long time, or at least having them has always come with this burden of, oh, the art market or the art world and, and a bunch of this stuff. But I think, you know, in the past five, six years, that's the, it's, it's somewhere else now, you know, and I'm, I'm more focused on, on my work. And I think that I'm making work from a more genuine perspective. Not that those paintings aren't, I think they, they were the most genuine because they were just so innocent, but, um, a lot of that innocence was sort of not corrupted, but jaded from my experience in the art world. So it's taken me some time to sort of find that voice. Um, Do you think Montauk helped in that? It didn't, it didn't. Um, <laughs> like I, I was having a conversation with my therapist the other day about how it's a bit, I, I focus so much on like my work and, and what I'm doing. And, and I find that like being in Montauk really helps me have that serenity and that sort of space from the world to do that. But at the same time, like my social life and the things are, which I'm learning are just as equally as important are sort of being neglected. So it's a bit of a balance that I'm trying to find. But yeah, it's, Montauk has definitely helped me for what I, what I needed it for, which was just time. Like yeah. you said, it's a bit early, I'm 31, to be looking back at my work and, you know, had I not had that experience that early on, I probably, you know, would have been in the studio this whole time and my work probably would have matured in another direction. But 
I think in the direction that I've gone in and, and the lessons that I've learned, I've been able to not only cope with it, but help a new generation of artists sort of climb over those barriers. So that's very interesting. And we're going to talk about that. Tell us about um, this. You were still an uh, undergraduate at I was a graduate already. Uh, graduate, yeah. yeah. So, so the Southampton suite are a specific set of 10 rain paintings that were made in 2013 in Southampton, here in Southampton. The original rain paintings were made in a similar sort of reclusive experience. After graduating from Cooper, I moved to upstate New York. Coincidentally, it was a property on James Ivory's land, who is Ivory Merchant. He produced like Lawrence of Arabia. So the scenery was, was amazing. And, and I had all this space to work outdoors. So one of the next slides you're going to see is a photo of Charlie Brown. Okay. So yeah, I've been searching for this image for a while. When I was in when I was in college, all my work was abstract, but all, all my reference material was like figurative images, like like basically your, your Instagram that you have now, right? It was a, a mood board for me. And my professors at the time were always telling me, you know, like your source imagery, like that's your work, bring it close to your work. But for me, it was much more of a like meditative therapeutic experience. So I would, I would concentrate on like a set of images and try to evoke those feelings through painting. So when I saw this image, I really was, was taken away by this sort of slapstick tongue in cheek mentality, right? The, at one point, like it's a sad situation, but us looking at it from third person, it's comical. And I think that we tend to deal with traumatic situations like that. Um, so a lot of the early rain paintings are all named after rom-coms like Sleepless in Seattle or My Best Friend's Wedding. Um, so the process basically begun with this image of me trying to figure out, okay, I want to make a painting that personifies rain and how do I do that? And so knowing about you know New York graffiti culture and knowing that the fire extinguisher has been used as a tool for tagging, um, I kind of put one and two together. And when then did it was you first? Was there like a fire extinguisher lying around there at Cooper Union? Or no, no. So the first rain painting was made after I got out of yeah. school. And so basically what you can do is you can go to like ranger.com or like any sort of hardware store and you can purchase these sort of water extinguishers. Certain building codes don't allow for the solvent or the powder solution. Chemical. So I ordered like 12 of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I filled them up with paint and I kind of just like, I nailed it on the first one. The first one was called Murmur of the Heart and it was actually blue and yellow, like the paintings in the gallery you'll see. And that was just because I had blue and yellow paint. And I, I, didn't, I didn't really, you know, like when you're scrambling for your keys and you have two keys that look the same and you put the first key and it's not the key, it's always the last key. <laughs> you know, for me, it was, it was, it was this first painting was like, the, it just wasn't supposed to happen. So right. I didn't measure the viscosity to the paint, right? Like the ratio of paint to water. I didn't measure the angle that I was spraying. I didn't measure the PSI pressure per square inch on the fire extinguisher or how far I was standing away. It just happened to, to go that way. And I spent months chasing that sort of perfection, which turned into a year, which turned into like 180 rain paintings that I think are all beautiful, but still I was focused on, the, on just trying to perfect this one thing that just happened by chance. A year later, after the rain paintings. So, how do you talk about painting 180 paintings in a year? Is that nonstop or? Yeah, it's every day. And this was in, in upstate. Yeah. Um, so, 
I mean, yeah, I was also so romantic, and I was, you know, like, for me, I was thinking about, like, Yves Klein and Chris Wool and the Hokusai uh, painting that you saw. Right. Um, I was planning on making rain paintings for the rest of my life, you know, at 21, and I realized that that just wasn't going to sustain itself. But I was offered a really sweet opportunity because I had left that house and I moved into a studio in Tribeca. And um, one summer, a former dealer of mine, Jeannie Greenberg, had offered me her home here in Southampton. And I was like, this is my chance to finally just like nail this. Because if I don't, I'm going to be, I won't be able to sleep. I'll just be like, thinking about how did I not make the best ones yet. So those are what you see there. It's sort of my last dance with them. And the nostalgic part of it is that I went back to the blue and yellow just uh, to wrap it all up. And what made you not sell them? Not just I knew this moment them. was going to happen. You know, I knew not, not, I didn't know that the museum show was going to happen. I knew yeah. looking back on it, how difficult it would have been for me to, or a museum to try to gather this many together. And I thought, you know, I had owned none of them. I, I was a kid, you know, so I didn't really understand how no one ever told me like you should save some for yourself. So this was also me being like, I'm going to cash in right here and, and own 10 rain paintings. But I also knew it would make it that much easier eventually once the sort of criticism and the market speculation stuff sort of died down, that it would have an opportunity to present them and for people to really see them. Because really, the first show that I had for the rain paintings was at a gallery, Moran Bondaroff in LA in 2012. And very little people saw those paintings in person. The only people that really see rain paintings are people who own them or people who frequent the auction houses, which not a lot of people do. So even with all that speculation and criticism, no one had actually really seen one in real life. And so for me, it's such a big opportunity to see people actually appreciate the work or not, you know, but experience it and not through a TV screen or computer screen or whatever. So um, this is the moment when you were the phenomenon, the wunderkind, the... Yeah, all that. Yeah. All that. Yeah. <laughs> and how did that... I mean, it, was, it was a strange experience, yeah. you know? I mean, obviously, I, my thoughts going through my head, leaving school and, and being 20, 21, I, like, I wanted all those things, you know? Like, I really wanted to be a famous artist. You know, I thought that mattered. Some, that meant something to me at the time. Um, and it kind of, yeah... Talk about that. It all started with this painting. Um, so this painting I made in college, it was part of my senior show that was called Imagined Nostalgia. It was a term that I learned in one of my core curriculum classes where we were studying tourism. And Imagined Nostalgia is this thing, this marketing tool that they use to relate nostalgic experiences to individuals even if you haven't had one. So when you see a commercial and it's like a, a son and his father fishing on a boat, sort of have this shared consciousness, right? This past that we share through the imagery we absorb that isn't necessarily ours. So I'm thinking about like Ferris Bueller and like 80s movies, John Hughes that I've watched and I sort of my show was around creating this fictitious adolescent 
to the teenager year period in a room. And so for me, Winnie the Pooh, you know, Christopher, William, Christopher, um, Robin. Christopher Robbins, Robin. like backyard, you know, like I never had a backyard as a kid, I grew up in an apartment building, but like that tree, you know, and, and, and those leaves were for me so nostalgic. So this was sort of the centerpiece of the show. And yeah, this, this painting kind of went nuts at auction and then it was like, who's Lucian Smith? And the next day it was like, oh, Lucian Smith, like I gotta get one of those paintings. And it kind of just all unraveled from there. But yeah, the-, the, the that was, This was the one that came up later, the secondary market, it's called. Yeah. yeah. And that, this was the tip of the iceberg, I guess. And the tipping point, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, when did you know you wanted to be an artist? Speaking of Winnie, the, speaking of Chris when, when did I want to be an artist? Yeah. Did you get asked? When did that? I know? I mean, I still don't really know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess I had a great art teacher at Santa Monica High School. I moved to California for my last two years of high school, and she was really influential on me. She she really opened my eyes to contemporary art. I had only known about Picasso and Warhol. I didn't know about Ed Boucher. I didn't know about Martha Rossler. I didn't know about Ronnie Horn. I didn't know that you could create art and have a career and, and like be alive and have a relationship with your audience. And so I went nuts after seeing like Ed Boucher's work, I remember. and. Yeah. Yeah, it just kind of clicked. It was around the same time. It was like I could go to UC Santa Barbara and like party and probably I don't know what would come after that. Or I could go to Cooper Union, which I got into for free. And I was like, I'm probably going to go to Cooper. And in those four years, I kind of maybe subconsciously made a decision that I wanted to pursue art as, as something. You said that maybe at Cooper, that was the last time you got real critique, that people told you the truth or your... Yeah, I, mean, I had this. I had this great teacher, Dory Ashton, and and yeah. she she goes one day. She's like smoking a Virginia Slim, and in, inside in Cooper, she was like very. She just was old enough and had been there long enough to still do that. And she yeah. was like, "You appreciate like people talking about your work because when you get out of college, no one's going to give." Shit. And I was like, "Okay," and and I and I always loved critiques and. Uh, STP is, is in a way formed from that sentence that she said where I, I didn't believe and I didn't want that to be the world that I lived in, that people who made art who weren't famous or didn't have an audience weren't able to share that with the world. And obviously social media and, and all these things have since then have developed where that is possible. But yeah, Cooper, Cooper for me was superficially, it was probably like most people's college experiences. You don't want to be there half the time. You do want to be there. My first two years, I remember it was like I would go academic probation and I would, I'd sit you in this room at the end of the year with like the whole staff and I'd, I'd form such a good relationship with them. I was like, come on guys, like, you know I can do this. And like kids would, they would decide whether you got to come back or go. So I remember my first time I was like really scared and then I got all A's and then the next semester I like flunked and they were like, what's going on? And I remember the second time I was just like laughing because I was like looking forward to seeing these faculty members but kids in there were like, I was like, yo, you might not come back to school. <laughs> And then by the third time, like they would just laugh. They were like, why are you in here? And I remember being like, I just want to see you guys. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I graduated. They gave me the Hans G. Burkhardt Award, which was a surprise. Like I never got an award for it. My only award in life before that was like getting into Cooper, which was sweet. But I remember I missed the graduation rehearsal. So it really was a surprise when they were like, and the award goes to, and I was like, what, are you kidding? <laughs> 
But yeah, my last two years at Cooper, I remember my junior year, I finally like was able to appreciate my, the community around me. I spent so much time like trying to isolate myself from school and then realized, you know, as it was leaving me that I was like, oh my God, this is like the greatest thing ever. I get to be surrounded by people who create and who want to have a conversation with me. So yeah, my last two years are definitely spent like really involved in that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that ethos and a lot of that um, mission that Peter Cooper initiated is very much entangled into what we are doing with serving the people. I was going to ask you about it. Tell about STP and were there any sort of historical antecedents for that? And you just yeah, um, the Peter two Cooper things. Did. The one was was Dory Ashton saying that to me and me wanting to make a place where whether or not you went to art school, you could show work or just show up and talk, and, and that were the those were the really rudimentary building blocks for it. Another one was. I remember on the Gagosian website, and if you clicked contact us, it doesn't say that anymore, but <laughs> it used to say like, basically it was just like, off, like don't send us your portfolios. <laughs> and, I, and I just remember I just remember being like, that's such a waste. Like there's so many artists out there. And even if they're not gonna be the next Picasso, like there's, there's an audience for that. And there's a conversation there. And especially growing up in the generation where like I was a foot in and a foot out of like social media, I saw the opportunity to create a place where like with very little overhead or operating fees to host people's work and for them to engage with one another and and that's kind of what spawned STP and it'll tell you like serving the people is a platform well, it for certainly will if I Okay. Oh, it's yeah. there. Serving the people is a community for multidisciplinary artists that create opportunity that creates opportunity. Yeah, I mean That's your mission statement. Yeah. Sure. I mean, this is very like formal. You know, STP is since COVID grown to be like a twenty to twenty-five person group of volunteers of postgrads and current students that run an editorial blog. Um, they communicate to universities all around the world, especially during COVID. You know, a lot of students lost opportunities to have undergraduate shows and end-of-the-year shows. So we put together a thing called BFA Show, and it was an online end-of-the-year show for 93 universities that had no contact with one another and sort of built this network together. Um, and that's worldwide. Right? Yeah, and that was the first. We'll, we'll do another one next year, COVID or not. But yeah, it's amazing. I think, you know, a lot of people, things happen out of, out of necessity sometimes, you know, and so I definitely was thinking about digital platforms and connectivity pre-COVID and I think people just didn't really understand or didn't see the need for it and then because of COVID it sort of just like accelerated into this thing where it's like oh like everyone's like oh yeah of course STP and and that's great and I love that it's working and my dream is it is it for it to do what it's doing now which is pretty much just program itself. Um, now you had a, a real life STP there eats the soil in yeah, LA in February just before everything so a lot, a lot of the programming a yeah. lot of the things and a lot of the ethos of STP come from shared experiences or, or things that I've gone through or other people have gone through and it also I use myself as a test bunny for it because I, I, have, I have no problem damaging my career but I would hate to put a younger artist in that position and have them be like dude what the fuck you like totally blew it for me so I had a show in LA um, under STP and it, it worked people showed up and yeah we took it from there but as far as physical shows go, COVID or not, I, I think what I'm more interested in is, is just building this platform. But yeah, it's I'm more interested in, in the idea of a platform and, and 
I, I really love that the students and that are working with us are very much interested in the programming and the editorial side. For me, it's the functionality. You know, uh, one thing that we're working on right now that's really exciting is, is artist pages. So we're going to start with a group of like 20 to 24 artists where they can upload their work at will. They can sell it. They don't have to sell it. They can promote it. And if it works, we will open that up to the public. So anyone can make an artist page and they can upload their music or embed their films or feature their artworks. They can sell them. They don't have to sell them. We take a small operating fee of like 13%, you know, but when you look at these galleries like Zwerner or Gagosian, they have like 48 artists, you know, who are in the 300 to 800 plus range. I'm, I hope in 10 years from now, we'll have 500,000 artists, you know, and under your Instagram profile, it'll say like stp.world slash your artist name. Um, and that's the thing is sort of like bringing younger talent together and focusing that energy because I also think that I think younger artists will agree with me on this, that it's art is becoming less about the tangible. You know, it's less about the sculpture. It's less about the painting. It's more about the spirituality or the emotion or the, the energy that is propelling an artist to do that in, in a sense that that's community. Um, and so I you think... You have to leave a little place for museums, right? And for the institution, of course. A bit. Now, this is incorporated as a nonprofit. Yeah. Do you have to fundraise? Uh, we or do. That's where I'm at right now in life, okay. is learning how to raise money for okay. a nonprofit. We invented this quirky clothing company that actually does pretty well and is taking care of some of the operating expenses. No, we, you didn't bring it. We don't have examples of that. It's oh, I online. Have, I have this hat, yeah. Oh, there you are. Can't have this one, but you can have another one. <laughs> but I think that's it for STP. But we can continue the conversation. Maybe I'll just go back. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because I'm. Uh, you, you got questions? Because I could go forever just talking about this. I want to ask you so many references, like Fury's the soil and some liminal references to okay, so let's certain see. films I, and the way you've named things. Do you, let's, let's let's leave it at this. Thank you. That's good. Do you see a lot of films? I do, I do. I'm working on a feature right now, but in this climate, it's very difficult. But I think a lot of the shows that I did in that sort of wonderkind area era were very like narrative. You know, they're very heavily heavy-handed. It was like you needed to read a press release to understand what the show was about. And I don't necessarily think that art it should be like a, your own experience. You know, in the Roland Barthes Death of the Author sort of whatever. Yeah. So film for me presented itself as a much more viable platform for these ideas and these stories that I wanted to tell because you know you listen to a song from beginning to end or you read a book left to right you watch a movie from beginning to end and, and that's it and with art it's a much there's m many points of entry and so I felt like I was limiting myself and limiting my viewer by like creating these shows that are about this or about this so yeah I was never much of a reader as a kid I've never read Count to Monte Cristo and the other day I, I was like on my Kindle I was like oh, I'm about to read this and I was like maybe I'll just watch the movie and I watched the movie and like for for me, that's just how I derive information, and, and now I know. And so, yeah, I've spent, I probably watched like two movies a night since I was like 16. So you know what? It happened one night. The great yeah. Frank Capra, you, you know. One, okay. the, what I watched, I watched, I watched <laughs> yesterday, um, I've been on a Brando thing. I watched oh. uh, The Wild One, Ooh, yeah. and I watched The Missouri something with Jack Nicholson and Brando. But yeah, I definitely have seen a lot of movies. Okay. Fassbender. 
Yeah. What what fastbender film am I thinking of right now? Uh, sorry, I'm blowing it. I'll come back to you. No, it's all right. Death of the author. Death oh, of the sorry. Fury, it's the, Fury, it's the soul. Of course. Fury, it's the soul. Right? Fastbender. That's where Fury, it's the soul. Talk a little bit about the food that you served in February. Uh, yeah, my buddy. Yeah. My my buddy Macklin, who is a chef in Los Angeles, we we both share this pretty same ideas and ideals when it comes to food waste. And I mean, I eat meat. I I, I try not to eat too much of it, but I'm sure a lot of you are aware of this whole Popeyes chicken phenomenon that happened before COVID. Popeyes like heavily marketed this sandwich, this fried chicken sandwich, and like I think people got stabbed by it. Right? Some people got stabbed, and I know you guys will know. Someone got stabbed waiting in line for a sandwich. Like, there were people fighting over the sandwich. So, we made a vegan Popeyes fried chicken sandwich with a Japanese mushroom, and it was sort of a bootleg version of Korokrit. I don't know if you know who Korokrit is, but he is a like relational aesthetics artist who focuses on bringing people together using food as the platform. So, his show was called Fury It's the Soul, which is the Fastbender movie. Mm. Um, about a man, a Muslim man who falls in love with an elderly widow, German widow, and, and how all the people around them are just telling them that this relationship cannot work. Yeah. And that fear ends up devouring the relationship. And so Fear Eats the Soil was the spinoff. And it's also like my Instagram, Finsta, um, which, yeah. There you go. Right. But uh, yeah, so we basically made like a bootleg relational aesthetic show <laughs> and we served a vegan Popeye's chicken sandwich. And it was great. The sandwich was awesome. <laughs> now, I, I, I know we generally with Zoom can hear questions from our global audience out there. Tonight, I would invite anyone here to ask a question. Yeah, I mean that's kind of that's kind of why STP exists or is trying to create like these sort of artist pages because you know when you look at you know you could so easily sell your work on eBay you know but it's just going to be lost in this mountain of goods and so what we're trying to do is anti-curate in a way where we can have a space where it is centered around the arts yet it's not exclusive so like a lot of the shows that we do all the shows and projects that we do are all submission based and you know you could argue like in a gallery in a group show you can only show so many artists because there's only so much wall space but when you're showing a digital show yeah. we had to ask ourselves a question like why are we turning down anything so we pretty you submit but you submit you automatically get in um, and that's the great thing about it and 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 that anti-curation is kind of what we're trying to do with STP is just like allow people to face reality right like someone once told me something that that really made sense to me as a kid as a younger artist which was like you can say your paintings worth seven thousand dollars and not sell it or you can say it's worth 700 bucks and sell it and you know and it's hard for artists to like deal with that you know how do you deal with value how do you value art so my approach to it is to just let them decide you know you can one day put your art up on your art page and write fifteen thousand dollars and if no one buys it you know keep lowering that number until you're comfortable and then lessons learned you know and, and there's always that harsh reality that like you might not be 
the artist that you think you are, you might not be able to control that, but we're gonna give you a place where you can face that now and move further than that, you know, and still have your audience and still have feedback and still be able to promote your work on social media platforms, which I think that's what it's good for. But for the presentation of it, um, I think that given my experience, I've tried to tailor a website that looks and feels mm -hmm. and is a, a appealing to a lot of artists and, and has this sort of loose format. But yeah, social media is like, I mean, in COVID, as much as we know, it, it's definitely huge. You know, it definitely connects all of us. As, I don't know if you've seen this documentary, The Social Dilemma, but it definitely like scared the shit out of me and, and it can definitely be used in the wrong way, you know, and that's why we have to be careful. Like, we're not taking your cookies or your, your personal information on this site yet. I mean, the fundraising part. You meant you asked a question or asked about what's the downside, but this is. The downside of social media, separate from STP, is that privatized companies are learning extremely a large amount of information about you that eventually they'll be able to predict what you do and what you want and basically do whatever they want with you. Sure. The upside is that it, it's, it's extremely useful. It connects people who would never have been connected before. Mm -hmm. And there's just has, there's a responsibility with it. And yeah, I think that I wouldn't necessarily call STP a social media platform. I would call it a platform. It definitely uses social media to market and to advertise, which I think are extremely useful resources. But yeah, it's, 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 it's like you, if you've seen the doc, it's definitely, there's a lot of, of gray area. Reading my mind, I do have a question. I'm listening to you, and I'm imagining you at Cooper Union at 21 years old, and some of these didn't eat you up, and the art world didn't. What do you think you would have created had that not happened? You mean if, if my career didn't take the direction that it took, and I had more time to develop? What um, collection of paintings perhaps got interested or yeah, it's not the right word. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of, yeah. Well, after the rain paintings, I sort of got pigeonholed into being like a, like a serialized artist. You know, it was like, what are the mm. next series of paintings you're going to make? And so there came the pie paintings, which were me taking pie tins filled with paint medium and throwing them against the canvas and this sort of slapstick uh, Charlie Chaplin S vibe. And then came the camouflage paintings, which were probably the apex of, of the series that I was working on. But it, it, in a way, did become very like market driven, if that makes sense. I think kind of where I'm at now, you know, I am taking all the bodies of work that I have made in the past and sort of figuring out how to dial them all into something that I can is more lasting, something I, I can do forever. And that really is presented itself in imagery, representational painting, because if the process that I've, I've started to work on and, and I'm working on at this moment allows me to render both photographic images of people and portraits, but also photographic images of topographical maps and weather patterns, which can be perceived as abstract forms. And so I was giving a tour here earlier today, and you know, when I was 21, those paintings were very innocent. You know, I was just letting paint 
flow through me uh, and it felt not contrived at all. But today when I think about like Jackson Pollock or like I'm just gonna go in the studio and make something, it's like, it's a bit contrived, you know? Those feelings aren't there for me anymore because they've been sort of jaded. But the motivation for wanting to paint has, has returned and I think that what I'm doing in this process and I'm doing, and, and again, like for an artist, or at least for me, there's peace in, in not always having to think about like what my next thing is gonna be. You know, I kind of just wanna be in a place where I can, I've created something that I can now continually find touchstones and, and, and bring objects and imagery from outside world through my filter, whether they be representational or abstract. So I think that probably would have just happened a lot sooner, but also not because there's so much that I've learned through other artists, through the, the last decade of painting and stuff that I've gone through. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, there probably just wouldn't be any STP and that would be a serious loss for me, at least in hindsight, because it's become so motivational and it's helped me find motivation in art and wanting to paint and met so many younger artists through that program that, yeah, but to answer your question, it, it probably would have been somewhere like where I am at now, but, or not. Could have just been making rain paintings for the last 10 years. I mean, I had, I had taken a kind of an angsty teenage approach to the whole thing, which was like, oh, if you guys aren't gonna mess with me, like, I'm just gonna disappear and do what I wanna do. And, and that was fun for a while. And then it just got boring because I just looked at all the art that I saw and I was like, oh, I can do so much better than this. And then it was like, no, you can't do better than that. It's not about being better. And you're like, I was just dealing with all these sort of like insecurities that I needed to get rid of. And now it's a much more psychologically healthy perspective that I have. But yeah, it's, it's a bit like, I mean, I, I played sports as a kid, but I really sucked at sports. So like I would always be on the basketball team or the baseball team, but my position was the bench mostly. And the last five years have felt like that. I felt like I've been sitting on this bench wanting to get on the plate. And now I finally have the opportunity and I feel like I have the confidence to do so. So that's kind of like how I feel today. That's great. Great answer. Um, Good question. Feature, and uh, I was just wondering what kind of uh, if you had any like unique philosophies you're trying to bring to that and that process, and just like how you're three films that I'm working on now, and they all sort of have to do with science versus religion or art versus religion or art versus science. The first one I can't really talk about, but I can give you a rough summary of it. It's, it's about the destruction of a really famous masterpiece or a vandalism of a, of a famous artwork by a person. I can't, I can't even go further than that. Um, the second one I can tell you about is called Flower in the Pond, and it is about Cambodian rock and roll. So during the Vietnam War, um, Cambodian rock and roll is a genre of music that like all these Vietnamese and Cambodians were like, not, I want to say imitating, but like emulating westernized music. Um, and, and it's really amazing music. You can find it online. But after the U.S. had left Vietnam and Cambodia, those artists were sort of genocide. Did They looked for them and literally beheaded them. So the film is about this band of 
of musicians led by this woman singer who are literally fle fleeing the Khmer Rouge. So they're basically having to pretend that they're not artists. They're like, no, I, I'm a farmer. I've been working on this farm, you know, and I don't really quite know how the movie ends, but um, it's either going to end with all of them dying or all of them getting away or, but yeah. No. And the third one? I want to make Andy Warhol's biopic. I think that uh. after those two films, I'll have enough experience. And I've, I've heard enough oral history of stuff that you probably don't know about Warhol that I think would be interesting to learn. But I'm sure after saying that, someone else will probably make that film before oh, me. Oh, no. Have you done the casting? Who's going to play? I want Michael Pitt to play Andy Warhol. Michael <laughs> Pitt, if you're listening to me, there you go. Yeah. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self if you were living Oh, man. I honestly don't think there's any advice I could, I, I could give myself at that age because I just was so stubborn and I just, like, wouldn't listen to anyone. So me knowing myself then, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't waste my time. But, yeah, good question. I mean, a lot of, like, I get a lot of, like, DMs. That's a direct message on Instagram. I'm just making sure well, some people you. might not know. Um, of of kids asking me, like, you know, what, how do I make it? How do I thrive in this industry? And for me, like, that's such an upsetting question, but I understand because I was so in that place when I was 20. But I think that art isn't about, like, being championed or, or being, it's not about approval, you know, or validation. It's like, because as someone that's received both rejection and validation, none of them mean anything to to the thing that's making me produce work. For me, it's if you have the ability to make art, then you've already arrived at the place you need to be, and you just got to keep doing what feels good. Um, if you don't have the means to make art, then you have to find something that can support you in order to do that, because art might not be the thing that pays the bills. And that's just like a reality that I think younger artists have to to cope with. And it's the same thing in Hollywood. You know, tons of actors that become waiters in Hollywood and some of them make it and some of them don't. And, and that's just life, I guess. But STP, for example, is one of those things I hope that at least there could be a place where you can express that, you know, actors have the underground theater and Broadway or off Broadway. Um, so having those venues or outlets for that creative energy, I think will help the younger generation. But yeah, it's not about like, you know, when I was 20, I wanted to be like the youngest artist and the Whitney Biennial and, and all these like accolades that I thought meant something. And I'm sure there are a ton of artists out there that still think that way. They don't. And, and you just have to either take my word for it or live through those experiences yourself. I think that's a great place to draw this to a conclusion. Thank you, Lucian. Terrific.